Knowing God's not just the title of a popular J.I. Packer book that some of you may have read. I know I was uh, given that book in high school. It's actually what humans are made for. We are created to know and image forth our Creator. In a nutshell, that's what life is all about. Uh, it's what eternity with God is going to be like, is knowing Him. Because God is infinite, because He's eternal, there will be, always be more for us to know. Uh, there will be more for us to learn. There will be more for us to discover, more of God for us to enjoy for all eternity. And in one sense, uh, we will be in heaven with him. And when we are, we will be completely content. We will have that fullness of peace and rest that we talked about earlier in the service uh, that we only know through faith right now. But our peace and contentment with him in heaven will only fuel our curiosity to know and experience more of him. And because that is the end, that is where we are headed for all those who are in Christ, is actually the point of life now. The point of life right now is to know God. God has revealed himself to us, and he's done so in a few different ways. There are different levels, there's different volumes to our knowledge of God. There is general knowledge, special knowledge, and personal knowledge. Or you could say that God has revealed himself through general revelation, special revelation, and personal revelation. These are all true revelations that reveal uh, the trueness of who God is. They are all ways for us to know God, but because they are different levels and different depths of knowledge concerning God, they also require and evoke different responses. These different levels or types of revelation require uh, different responses and different resp uh, reactions to that knowledge of what's been revealed in each of those categories. The psalm we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 19, poetically describes and shows us these different levels of knowing God, the different ways in which God has revealed himself to us. Uh, poetry has a unique ability to paint a picture and get across an idea that's using words that other styles of writing just can't touch, they can't get at, they can't get to. In fact, C.S. Lewis said that Psalm 19 is one of the greatest poems in the entire Psalter. Uh, and he is a prolific writer, so he knows what he's talking about. Uh, in many ways, this psalm, Psalm 19, is able to give us the meaning of life in 14 verses. It's able to give us the meaning of life without explicitly telling us what we should do. And without telling us this is, at, in fact, the meaning of life. Uh, so if you can or able, please stand for the reading of God's Word in Psalm 19. We're going to read the whole thing. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant uh, your, is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep, me, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can be seated. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would um, jump off the page this morning, uh, that you would reveal the beauty of who you are in all the areas that you have revealed yourself to us, and help us to experience uh, the truth of what we proclaim to believe again and afresh this morning. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so God, as we've already talked about, has revealed and given us these three levels of revelation, these three levels of being able to know him. And this psalm is broken up into those three different levels. You can break up the psalm into three sections that go along with those three kind of levels of revelation. The first one is the first six verses, verses one through six. This section is all about natural or general revelation. And general revelation is about knowing God strictly through his creation. And what is unique about this section compared to other psalms or passages in Scripture that depict God as displayed in creation is that it doesn't include an explicit call to praise God. There's no explicit call or commandment found in these verses. It simply describes that creation, that nature, reveal God in a real but general way. And although we're told there are no words used, nature itself pours forth uh, speech to everywhere and to everyone. Knowing God through creation is like knowing a painter through viewing his works of art at a museum, right? The, the paint and the art, uh, it can be moving, it can be captivating, it can be awe-inspiring, beautiful, uh, evoke even scary, kind of haunting emotions, breathtaking. Uh, the gauntlet of emotions that it can be evoked through viewing art in a museum is a wide, wide range, right? Uh, one aspect of this kind of revelation that we're told in these verses is that it reaches everyone. No one's excluded. No one's not uh, exposed to this. It goes everywhere. It cuts through all language barriers it speaks to all cultures. There is nowhere that a person can go and not see God's glory and majesty on display in his creation. There's nowhere you can go to not be confronted with God's revelation of himself as seen through nature. In other words, no matter who you are, what you believe, or where you are from, everyone reads about God in his book of nature. It is a wordless communication, but its power and its reach is undeniable, right? It's moving, whether it's the vast mystery of the ocean, the firm beauty of a mountain, the delicate creativity of a flower, or the overwhelming, endless 
uh, sight of the stars. Creation speaks to all of us. It can take our breath away. It can make us feel small. It can inspire us. It can communicate connection to us. It can even produce some healing that's needed uh, in our life. God's revelation through creation is majestic, and it is glorious. I mean, you may want nothing to do with God, but you are not safe from being affected by the revelation of him in creation. The beauty, power, and creativity spoken to us through creation is relaying a message to us. It's relaying a message to the entirety of the human race. It's saying, we creation, and therefore you, are not meaningless. We are not meaningless. There is purpose. There is design. And there is a creator that we all point to. Love and beauty are not just in the eye of the beholder, but they are a powerful thread that's been weaved into the purpose and meaning of life because they reveal to us the one who has created the source of beauty, the source of love. But there's another component revealed in creation beyond beauty, beyond creativity. Uh, There's something that we experience in nature, and it often provokes us to uh, be fearful It provokes fear and danger. I mean, the expansiveness and power of creation communicate how small and fragile we really are compared to the creator of the universe. There's a delicacy and a detailed beauty in creation that draws you in, but there is also an overwhelming force and feeling that makes you stand back and tremble in fear. All of these things and more are revealing to every person That there is a God, and you are not Him. General Revelation tells us that we are dependent on our Creator. Dependence is not a part that comes after the fall and after sin is introduced into the world, but it's a part of being human, of being created. The very fact that we are created shows that we are dependent on our Creator, dependent on God. But like the painting telling us about the painter, what we can know about this God through this type of revelation uh, is very removed, right? And therefore, it could be misunderstood. It could be misinterpreted. There's a limit to it. No matter how connected we feel to that art, uh, our knowledge and relationship to the artist still is at a surface level. It's still removed from their heart and who they are. I mean, no matter the amount of time you study the art, you love the art, uh, or no matter who it is, the knowledge of that artist compared to somebody like their spouse or their siblings or their best friends uh, pales in comparison, right? It's a one-way general kind of knowledge that is real. It is powerful, but it's lacking and it's limited. The psalmist uses probably the most prominent part of creation to show us Uh, creation's ability, this general revelation's ability to reveal God. That part is the sun, right? The sun reaches every corner of creation. No one can escape it. It is an absolute necessity for life, for flourishing, and for warmth. And yet the sun can be harsh, right? It can produce damage. It can even kill things if you get too close or too much of it. Creation reveals to us that there is a God, there is a creator, but 
the revelation and creation is not enough for us to truly know this creator personally. This is why the psalm can't end at verse 6. In fact, even the content in this section shows us the limitations of natural or general revelation. It's because God is only named once in this section. And the name that's used is the general term and personal term for God, El or Elohim. Uh, that's the only reference to God in this whole section, revealing to us the limits of this type of revelation, which leads us to the next section, verses 7 through 11. It's here that we see another level of God's revelation, that of special revelation. Special revelation is knowing God as as he has revealed himself in his word, in the Bible, in the scriptures. That is what is meant when the psalmist pins uh, all these different kind of words for the Scriptures, like the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, precepts of the Lord, commandment of the Lord, and rules of the Lord. And right away, you start to see and notice a massive difference between this section and the previous one, right? The descriptions that he gives, it points us to the major differences between the two revelations, God is named seven times in these few verses compared to the one time in the first six verses. And more than that, he's no longer using the general and personal name of El, but his personal covenantal name of Yahweh. A little side note, anytime you see the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, in the Old Testament, that is the name, God's covenantal name, Yahweh, uh, given. Special revelation is different from general revelation, not in that it contradicts it in any way, but that it's more specific. It's more personal revelation of who God is. It tells us who he is. It tells us what he is like. It reveals God's heart to us. Without the Bible, we would have no way of truly knowing who God is and what he is like. As one commentator summed up this section about the Word of God, he writes, Because God's Word is whole and complete, it is also reliable and trustworthy, and thus it can provide undeviating guidance to life. This guidance is not viewed as restrictive, but gives joy to the heart. In other words, there's no more, there's, we don't have a need for more revelation beyond the Word of God. What we have here is whole and complete to know the heart, to know who he is, and to know how to live life. There are benefits, we're told, in this section to the Word of God. There are, therefore, attractions to the Word of God. It says that it can revive the soul. It can make wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It warns and rewards because it shows us how life was meant to be lived. I mean, who better to show us that than the one who created life, right? Who better to show us what life is all about than the one who created everything, including us? So in this light, his rules that are given in the Word of God are not meant to be restrictive, but they're meant to reveal to us how to flourish. How to flourish, because he's the one who created us to do so. So the rules that he gives in his Word are not to restrict and hem us in so that we can't grow. 
It's actually to show us the freedom that we have in order to flourish and grow more and more. Uh, There are specific instructions and guides and personal revelation given in the Word of God that you will not find anywhere in creation. No matter your knowledge, your experience, your study of it, no matter how long you've lived, you will not find in creation what's given in the Word of God. Therefore, because of what God's Word reveals to us, we're told it's more valuable than gold and sweeter than all the honey creation could offer. And notice that that is a proclamation of its intrinsic value. It's not saying this can be valuable. This can be sweeter to to you than honey. It is. It is more intrinsically valuable than all the gold. And it is sweeter than all the honey. Whether we experience that or use it that way is not a, a testament of what the value is. It's a testament of how we mistreat it, right? And so it's proclaiming to us what's true. Here is the word of God, the special revelation of God to us to reveal the heart of God, of who he is to us, and how we are to live life. And that leads us to our last and uh, the shortest section in the psalm. And yet despite its length, despite its placement uh, at the end of the psalm, this section is actually the most important part of our knowledge of God. You see, it's not enough to know God through creation because it's a general vague understanding of him, meaning you will never know the heart of God through creation. But it's not enough even to know God as he is revealed in the scriptures, meaning it's not enough to simply know or even believe what the scripture says about God. We're told that demons believe that, and they shudder. The psalm is showing us that we must know God at a personal level. Look at verses 12 through 14. The psalmist no longer describes God as seen in creation or in his word, but personally responds to God revealed in his word, revealed in the scriptures. The psalmist is moved and prompted to speak back to God, but his speech is not a response of generality. It's a revealing of his own heart. See, the law of God shows us the way we ought to live. The way we were created to live, the way that one made in the image of God is called to live. And yet the psalmist's first response to God's word and his law is not, help me live this way. That's not his first response. His response is a plea to be declared innocent. There is not a general acknowledgement of not being perfect, but he's calling out different categories of sin in his life. The willful sins, the hidden sins. The sins that are unknown to him, that he's blind to. An old professor of mine, Sinclair Ferguson, pointed out that while we read the book of nature and can read the book of Scripture, our personal knowledge only happens as the book of Scripture begins to read us. And this is what he means, that the law of God reveals to us not just how we ought to live, but in turn it reads us by showing us the ways that we don't live. It reveals to us, in other words, our need for God. It reveals to us our need for God to reveal, by revealing our sins before him. Our surface sins, our willful sins, and even the sins that we are unaware of, that we are blind to. It's why the psalmist responds the way he does in verses 12 through 14, even asking that God would not allow those sins to rule him, to have dominion over him. 
See, the law has revealed how weak he is, how far short he falls. It reveals to him what his need really is. And it's not just instruction from the law. It's revealed the depth of his need. See, the law reveals to us our sin and our need, but it cannot save us from our sins. And it cannot meet our need. The law can't and won't declare you innocent. It will only reveal to you your guilt. Romans 8, verse 3 through 4, put it this way, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, it's only the Word of God who took on flesh that can save you from your sin. And therefore, only He can be the one who can revive your soul. Revive your soul. What does that imply? It's not revived, it's dead. It needs to be revived, right? And only he can do it. Only the word of God that took on flesh. The law is limited. The law weakened by the flesh was unable to do that. Only the one who took on flesh, the word of God, can revive your soul. Only he can make our knowledge of God's word personal to us. Only Jesus can make us who are guilty innocent. Because he took on all of our sins, our hidden sins, our willful sins, the sins that we aren't even aware of, our past sins, our present sins, our future sins, all of our sins were bore on the shoulders of the Word of God who took on flesh to do for us what the law cannot do, to declare us innocent by taking on our guilt. See, it's this that takes our knowledge of God's love and grace from being something we, understa- something we understand to something we experience, to something that we taste. And it becomes the very fuel that can actually transform our hearts. It transforms us to actually start to keep the law of loving God and loving others. Because now God's love and grace are not ideas for us to understand, but they are real for us and personal for us in Jesus. And when they become more real, when they become more personal, the reviving of our soul actually looks like a response to loving God and loving others in light of how he loves us. See, God can be seen in nature. He can be understood in Scripture, but he only becomes known personally through Jesus as he is revealed in his word. Remember that first section, 1 through 6, about general revelation gives that general name of God, that one time. And then the next one, verses 7 through 11, give the spe- of special revelation, show us the covenantal name of God seven times. But it's only in this last section, verses 12 through 14 of personal revelation, that the psalmist speaks personally about God. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, O Lord, Yahweh, my rock, and my redeemer. It's only here that he claims him to be his God. You see what's happening? That he goes from speaking about God to now speaking to God, to claiming him as his God, his rock, his redeemer, his salvation. 
calling upon him as his security, as his hope, his redemption. Now all these wonderful things that he describes about Scripture have become personal and true for the psalmist. Because only Jesus, our Redeemer, can do that. Only he has the power to revive our soul and declare us innocent. And so the question for you is, has it become personal for you? Where is your level and knowledge of God in this? Has it become personal for you? Is God, for you, still a vague, distant idea that you're not opposed to, like standing before a mountain where you might be in awe, but you feel disconnected, feel far from, you think that there's not a lot that it can do to help you? Or is God more like a policeman who's given you laws to show you how to live and to help you live, but he's also watching your every move to make sure that when you mess up and when you break that law, handcuffs are coming, right? Punishment, jail time. Do you know God's loving embrace personally? Have you drunk from the fountain of his reviving grace that's only found in the word of God who took on flesh? If you haven't, why not? What's keeping you from knowing him personally like this? God has revealed himself to you in his word so that you would know him personally. And so if you haven't done that, my plea for you this morning is don't wait. Do it now. Ask God, as the psalmist does, to declare you innocent from all your sins, the willful sins, your hidden sins that people don't know about, the sins that you're blind to that you don't know about. Place your trust in the one who came to do for you what the law is unable to do, to save you by dying for your sins. And if you have done this before, don't delay to do it again. Don't delay to see God in all of creation, to be mindful of him, but don't stop there. Use that to cause you to come to his word, to see his heart for you as displayed in the Son of God and return to him. Come back to his bottomless well of grace and drink of it until your heart is full and your soul is revived. Fight all of our tendencies to think of God as a policeman out there ready to bust you. Right, The guilt and the condemnation after you sin that you hear is not the voice of God. It's not the voice of God. It's the voice of the law. The law cannot save you. It will reveal your need, but it cannot meet your need. So go to the one who does. Go to the one who has, who took on flesh the word of God. And when you do, it's only then will we respond to live as the psalmist does with a desire and a longing for the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart to be acceptable in his sight. The words of our mouth, the outward behavior, the way we speak about him and about others, and the meditation of our hearts are inward motivations and desires. Both of those things, the psalmist is longing for those things to be acceptable and pleasing in his sight. But that doesn't come until he experiences and knows God's truth and grace personally for him. So come back to receive that grace, and in light of that, respond as the psalmist does. The meaning of life is found here in this very psalm, as we talked about, and being known by God, 
and in knowing his personal life-transforming love for you in Jesus. So this week, when your soul needs to be revived, when you need wisdom, when your heart is not rejoicing, turn to the Word of God found in His love and grace displayed in the face of Jesus. Turn to Him this week when you need that. Turn to Him when your soul needs revival. Turn to Him when you're captured by the beauty and majesty of Him in creation. Turn to Him again and again for wisdom, and for joy. Let the Scripture read you. Read about Him, but let the Scripture read you to reveal your need, to see how you need Jesus personally, but then believe and see that He has met you in that need, that He has met you in that specific area, that that's what He came for. And when you do so, your soul will be revived. And when you do so, you can honestly pray like the psalmist does, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Amen.